good being with you, and it's a joy to have Sam's parents with us. Be welcome. It's always a joy to have you with us. I uh, just want to remind you, next Lord's Day, we have the Lord's Supper. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We have celebration of the offering, and we are going to be presenting Michael. So, Michael hurt his back really bad, this I think, this weekend, and that's why we're going to present him today, but we're going to leave him for next Sunday. So, we're going to be presenting Michael next Lord's Day. Uh, that I know we... We are not having a meal afterwards. I, that, that's what I, unless somebody comes up with a plan during the week, just because we never set up anything. So in case you guys decide to, let, a, let, let, let the church know about a meal. But for now, you're going to have just the Lord's Supper, the, the offering. Okay? Uh, and we are going to be presenting Michael, so it's a great joy. Let, 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 let us pray. I forgot to pray for Michael this morning. Let's pray for him too. Uh, a lot of members sick and not feeling well this morning. Oh Lord, we we lift up our brothers and sisters who are not doing well this morning. The body's aching, sickness, and I, I just pray they'll be with your mighty and merciful arms to be embracing each one of them. Help them to rejoice in you. And help us to long for the new heavens and the new earth, Lord. Help all of us to long for glorification. Help us to be joyful, content during this time of sanctification. But help us to be longing for the consummation of all things. Deliver us from being comfortable in this place here. Uh, be with our brothers and sisters right now, Lord. And, and be with us. As Jaron pray, I say amen. Help us. Help us to continue tasting and, and seeing how gracious you are, how wonderful you are. Speak to us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And if you can, would you stand, please? Let's read verses 10 through 20. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly 
as I must speak. You can be seated and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Uh, think about a, a power plant or a powerhouse, a power station, however we call. It's a very interesting facility. One single large power plant can generate enough electricity to supply a couple of hundred thousand homes, it said. That's how much power and energy uh, a, a, a good-sized power plant can provide. Powerhouse. You think about the great preacher Spurgeon, and we would say that he is a powerhouse uh, in preaching. He's well known for his preaching, right? The prince of preachers, how powerful he was preaching. But actually, if you, if you could, in those days, go and visit Spurgeon's church in London, and you say, Spurgeon would like to see your church, and he would bring you to a very unique place in that church. And that's what he would do with everyone who would come to see his church. It wasn't primarily his office where he was studying. It was actually a prayer room that he had. And that's where he would bring people to see all those members always on their knees, rotating and praying, praying for the church and praying for him. And then he would say, here is the powerhouse of the church. That's where all the power is being generated from. Spurgeon once said that the prayer meeting of a church is the spiritual thermometer of that church. He goes on to write, he says, the condition of the church may be very accurately gouged by its prayer. So you can measure by its prayer, by its prayer meetings with the whole, all the members together. So he says, so is the prayer meeting a grace-ometer, or we could say a power meter, something that measures power. And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, he must pray. And if, he, and if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. The Spurgeon is declaring what the scriptures declare, the corporate prayer, not individual prayers primarily, but cor corporate prayer, the whole church praying together, is what generates power in the life of the church. And that's what we see Paul doing here in Ephesians. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, chapter 6. What is his command to the church? Be strong, be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he, go, he goes on to tell us that one of the ways that we are going to be empowered in the Lord is by the whole church doing what? Praying together. Corporate prayer. It's amazing. Ephesians chapter 6 teaches us something that has been very neglected lately, especially in the American church. And that's the power of corporate prayer. And that's something that's all over the scriptures. God's people calling on the name of the Lord. That's prayer. Do you remember what the definition of prayer? To call on the name of the Lord for Him to do what we cannot do on ourselves. It's to call on the name of the Lord so He will accomplish what He has promised to us. So, for example, we read in Psalm, Psalm 116. And here is the representative of the nation. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. 
because he inclined his ears to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffer distress and anguish. Then I call on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And you keep reading Psalm 116, and the Lord delivers him. Or another one. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, what did the psalmist do? I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. That's a victory has always been by God's people humbling themselves and calling upon him. Not by, I will do that, I will achieve that. Exodus chapter 17, think about the book of Exodus. Chapter 15, right after they cross the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. Chapter 15, they sing the song of Moses, that beautiful hymn that the Lord is a warrior fighting for them. Chapter 17, they face the Amalekites. Exodus chapter 17. There they are, already facing battles. Yes, they were delivered, but they're still facing battles. And they're facing the Amalekites. And remember what happens in that battle. Exodus chapter 17. Moses is holding a staff in his hand. And remember, he's the mediator between him and the army of Israel, with Joshua leading and remember what happens to Moses, he needs to keep his hands up. And that's a posture of prayer, a surrender. The Lord is the king, he's holding that. People, the army can see him holding that. And what happens to his arms? What happens to his arms? Get tired. And, and what happens? Yes, Aaron and her come alongside and do what? Hold his arms. And the army is fighting. So you see, corporate. It's corporate fighting together. And primarily the power is coming from prayer. Because as soon as his arms fall, what happens? They start to be defeated. And you see that the Lord teaching us. God's people must be praying. That's the power plant of the, always God's people. Power plant, people together praying. Asking the Lord to do what we cannot do. And that's what we see, especially in the book of Acts. As we see the church facing many enemies in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, you remember Peter and James. Peter and John had been arrested. And they are in prison. And then... Look at verse 23. From verse 23 through 31, we have the church praying. Look at that. When they were released, chapter 4 of Acts, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard it, they lift up their voices together to God and said. So they're praying together. The first thing the church does as Peter and John are released and they come back is to pray together. They assemble as one body and they're praying together. And what, what Luke, the author of Acts, is doing here is similar to what Spurgeon did with the visitors. 
Luke he's taking us to the powerhouse, the power plant of the church, the early church, and say the power of this weak man, this small group of men, is that they're always praying. And that's what Luke's doing with us, taking us behind the curtains and say, Do you see the power of this church that could never, could never triumph under Jewish oppression and the Roman persecution and yet because they're always praying together the power of God has been manifested turn with me to Acts chapter 12 you notice it's not individual but the whole body praying together Acts chapter 12 once again Peter is arrested look at verse 5 so Peter was kept in prison, but what happened? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by whom? By the church. Corporate prayer. The church praying for Peter. And then you keep reading. Verses 6 through 11, what happens? He's delivered. The Lord answers the church's prayer in His mercy and empowers Peter to be released. The angel of the Lord comes and releases Peter. And look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were doing what? Praying. praying. The church was praying. How much of the American church prays together? How many churches have corporate, congregational prayer meetings? It's vanishing. No wonder it's so anemic, so much of what is called Christianity today. Look at Acts chapter 2. So all these things that Luke's showing us, in Acts chapter 2, we read of the early church, and they devoted themselves, verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to what? The prayers. The prayers. Meaning, specific times of all the church together praying as one body. And that's what we see now Peter is showing us what he had ex explicitly stated earlier. And you see how little we give priority, how little priority we give to congregational prayer meetings. And I'm not talking about this church by no means. It's an amazing group of members here, the faithfulness. But you think so many Christians, how anything that shows up, it's an excuse to not attend a prayer time, a prayer meeting. Today, if you have a church of 100 members, let's suppose you have a church to have... 200 members. And then you say, oh, we're gonna, we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday or every Sunday morning or evening. And in this prayer meeting, out of these 200 members, 10 members come. People think it's normal. People think it's normal. In Scotland, there was a pastor. He would not let the members who did not attend the prayer meetings to attend the business meeting of the church. And say, so you, you didn't do the business of praying with us, so you're not going to be attending the business meeting of the church. Right? Yeah. 
Corporate prayer is one of the most fundamental marks of the apostolic church. And sadly, it's not that out of a mark in our church today. So, Grit Osborne in a theological journal, he writes, Prayer was much more central in the life of the church in the first century than it is today. Prayer meetings today are a thing of the past. And even the pastoral prayer has been jettisoned in many churches. The average Christian today considers prayer almost entirely a private activity, while the early church reversed that and thought first of corporate prayer and then of individual prayer. Similarly, think about the, the Reformation. The Reformation was just going back to what the Bible taught us. And you think about the time of the Reformation, it was a time, the Great Reformation was a time of great spiritual warfare. Amen? Imagine fighting against the kingdom of darkness, a time of oppression, persecution. How many Christians were martyred during the Reformation? And you think about Luther, one of the main names, a giant during the Reformation. And he was championing the prayer, congregational prayer. For Luther, prayer is by no means a private matter. Each church service is to include prayers of thanksgiving and intercession. He, he, he marks prayer as one of the marks of a true church. So Luther says, a Christian co congregation, a Christian church should never gather together without the preaching of God's word and prayer, no matter how briefly. When the church, always under attack from the evil one, comes together, it must lift up its voice together. For indeed, the Christian church on earth has no great power or work against everything that may oppose it than such corporate prayer. That was Luther's words. And then he goes on to say that after hearing the, the word being preached, the church must unite in giving thanks and prayer to the Lord. And Paul, as he's coming towards the end of, can go back now to Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul comes towards the conclusion of Ephesians chapter 6, him, he's just, all that's flowing from the scriptures, the power of corporate prayer. You need to be praying together. We all need to be praying together as a church. So, let's go and here's the outline of this morning. You're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. So first, Paul's prayer request for a word. And then Paul's prayer request for boldness. He has two prayer requests here in verses 19 and 20. And just so, as we come to we have been talking about prayer, and now Paul is going to talk about prayer for himself. You think about Paul, and I encourage you to read the book of Acts and see how often Paul is connected with prayer in the book of Acts. So Paul's, think about Paul, his apostolic ministry began in prayer. You have people praying for him. And according to tradition, it ended in prayer as he was martyred and he was praying while he was dying. His whole ministry was grounded in and developed from prayer. And this scholar says, apart from prayer, life as a redeemed slave of Christ was inconceivable and impossible. Sadly, so many Christians live lives without praying. As if that was possible to live the Christian life without depending on the Lord and humbling ourselves that was not Paul. So let's go to verse 19. Here's Paul's prayer request. And you see verse 19 and 20 says, And also for me, the words may be given to me in the opening of my, 
my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. And sometimes we come to these verses here and, and it's tempting for us to divorce these verses from the theme of spiritual warfare, right? Look at that. How, how is that connected to spiritual warfare? Here's Paul talking about the battle and the wrestle against darkness, putting on the armor of God, and now he talks about pre praying for him. So it's tempting for us to kind of remove verse 19 and 20 from the context of warfare. And let us not do that. We cannot divorce that. Paul is united with the church in Ephesus. He's spiritually united with them. And just like they are in a spiritual warfare, so is Paul also. He's in a spiritual warfare. You're going to see he's in chains. He's under spiritual attack. And you can picture, look at verse 18. Paul is commanding them, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he says, pray for all the saints. And you can just picture Paul. He's just imagining the power of that church praying together. And what does he say? Put my name in your prayer list, please. As you're all together praying for all the saints, please do not forget me. Because I need your prayers. That's what Paul is doing. He's picturing the power of the ch those churches in Ephesus. All the congregation praying together. He knows that's the power plant, the powerhouse of the church. And he says, hey, when you're praying for all the saints, do not forget me. Pray for me too. That's what Paul is doing. And he asks, look at that. And also for me, the, the ESV has words that words may be given to me. It's actually the word logos, and it's in the singular. And I think this would support my argument that a few Sundays ago when I said that there is no theological difference here when Paul is using Rema and Logos because Paul is asking for a word to speak. If, if, he, if he believed in this difference between Rema and Logos, he would clearly use Rema because he needs a word to speak. So you can see that there is not much of that difference as I said earlier. But he asked for a Logos, a word. And it's better to see here as a discourse. He, he needs to put the words together to form a coherent message that he's about to speak. So Paul is not asking for what he knows because he knows the gospel message very well. Does anybody know the gospel message better than Paul? <laughs> the greatest theologian of the church. So he's not asking for, oh, help me with the gospel message. No, he's asking for wisdom to how to speak under the circumstances that he's at right now. So, Paul is about to stand before the Roman tribune. He's in chains. He's arrested by the Romans. He's under spiritual attack. He's about to speak to the Roman authorities. And he needs to explain to them that the church is different from the Jewish community. And at the same time, has Jewish and Gentiles. So, Paul is struggling. He needs to present now before Caesar... What the church is. Paul, what is this strange teaching that you have been bringing to Rome? And you are raising the anger and the wrath of Gentiles and Jews. What's going on here? So he needs the Holy Spirit to empower him and give him wisdom to speak clearly before those Roman authorities. I like what Clinton Arnold says, and that helps us to see what's going on here. He says, as Paul pens this letter... 
He's about to face the greatest opportunity of his Christian ministry, to stand in a tribune in Rome before Emperor Nero and all of the magistrates and defend himself against the charges brought against him. Paul's motivation goes far beyond, beyond presenting the best defense possible to escape death or further incarceration. So meaning, Paul is not thinking just about himself. He's thinking about how to present the message. And then he says, Paul sees, he sees this as an extraordinary opportunity to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the most influential and powerful people in the world. No doubt, this is a profoundly intimidating atmosphere, and most assuredly, the evil one is attempting to assail Paul in the most effective ways he can devise to prevent his testimony from being heard. Paul is in the midst of an intense spiritual battle, and he recognizes his need for prayer from his fellow brothers and sisters. So Paul is an ambassador, and he needs wisdom to put that message together that will glorify the kingdom that he is representing. So that's why he's asking for help here. So basically, he's asking for the spirit of wisdom to come, the Holy Spirit to come and empower him to speak rightly, put together that message rightly. He needs, he needs the Lord to help him. And here's the greatest preacher of the church asking them to pray for him because he needs help. And he says, he talks about the mystery. Look at that. In the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We forgot to turn on the lights. I don't know if we need those lights. Yeah. It's pretty hot anyway. So <laughs> I'm glad the lights are off. So you see how Paul, uh, he, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel. What, what is the mystery of the gospel? The mystery. Uh, Paul is drawing the word mystery from Daniel. The book of Daniel, and especially in Daniel chapter 2. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has that dream of the statue. And he's always talking about this mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery of this dream, this mystery. And Daniel says that the God in heavens can reveal this mystery. But the mystery is not revealed. Remember, it's just an interpretation of this kingdom. And then suddenly that stone comes, and what does the stone do? destroys the kingdom and what happens to that stone becomes a mountain and what Paul is doing is he's going back to Daniel just like John will do and he's saying here's the mystery that mystery is Jesus Christ in the gospel that's he, he is that stone that destroyed the kingdoms of the world and became the mountain of God the church and now bringing Jews and Gentiles together to form one people so the mystery of God's plan of redemption has been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery is Christ, Jesus, bringing together Jews and Gentiles to be the one people, and that must be proclaimed. The mystery must be proclaimed. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't keep secret. It's to be proclaimed, this mystery. Amen? So let's move to verse 20. Paul says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly, so Paul sees himself as what? Ambassador. Ambassador. Yeah, one who represents a kingdom, a country. Uh, the word presbyter, from also we have presbyteros, that's derived from the same word, uh, refers to the one who functions as a representative of a ruling authority. 
One, one dictionary says, to travel or work as an ambassador is to reveal the riches, power, and dignity of the government that he represents. That's what Paul is doing. He's revealing the riches, the power, the beauty, the glory of that government that he is representing. In the New Testament, this Greek term was the functional equivalent, equivalent to the Latin legatus, or legate, the Roman legate. And he was a representative of the Senate, dispatched to bring official policies and rulings from the Senate to a particular province. Sometimes a legatus was even appointed directly by the emperor to govern a certain region. And that's how Paul sees himself, and I would say not only himself, but that applies to every minister and to every Christian in a certain way. Of course, first of all, Paul, but then that's passed to all those who minister the gospel and to all Christians in general, because we all call to proclaim the good news. That's how Paul sees. Uh, and you think about, okay, so if we are ambassadors, the church is what? An embassy. The church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So when people come to the church, they taste the heavenly gifts. They can see how it is. It's a different culture. It's a different lifestyle. That's why you go to an... I suppose you are in Africa, you're in the Middle East, and you go to the, an American embassy. And suddenly you're going to have the same language, the same music, the same food, coffee. Why? Because the life. It's bringing to that region something from a different country. Embassy. That's what the church is supposed to be. And also it's fascinating because an ambassador was one with profound authority, status, privilege. So you see the incongruity and even inappropriateness, it's completely contradictory to have an ambassador in chains because an ambassador would never be in chains. You'd never be arrested. He had the power of the king. So this shows the paradox of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the highest authority. The Lord Jesus, the Lord of lords, is marked by suffering, persecution. And that's how we advance the kingdom. We advance the kingdom through pain, through suffering. Amen? The kingdom advances through pain, chains, suffering. Paul shows his chains, his suffering, a revelation of the king. So as he's wearing these chains, he's revealing the king of his kingdom that he's representing. Uh, most ambassadors in the Roman time, they would be walking around with chains around their neck. And those chains were made of gold. They would be having chains around their wrists, gold chains. But Paul is the contrary. He's an ambassador of the kingdom of the king who died on a cross. Therefore, he's not wearing gold, gold chains as an ambassador, as a dignitary. He's wearing chains around his ankle. He's arrested. He has been imprisoned. And that's pretty embarrassing. It's humiliating. And also we see by Paul referring to himself as one in chains, the persecution, the kingdom of darkness is going full force against him. He is under spiritual attack. So he says in verse 20, for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare. And he says here, let me see if that's the next one. Yeah, as I must you. Paul, Paul sees a necessity, as I ought to speak. So there is a divine necessity in preaching the gospel. 
Why? He's compelled. There is a necessity because he loves the Lord, because he loves the lost. So he is compelled to proclaim. And also because Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me, like a heavy hand upon his shoulder. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Huh. Don't you wish that every preacher, every pastor would have this burden? Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. So many men who proclaim to be ministers, entertaining people just with stories, never preaching the word of God. They don't have this woe, woe, condemn, damn is me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul was conquered. We saw that in Philippians. Paul was conquered by King Jesus. And was King Jesus placed upon his shoulder a holy obligation to proclaim the gospel. So, Paul says that he's under divine necessity. And every, every true faithful preacher will feel the same necessity. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. If I'm not faithful to God's word. So he continues, and here's what he's requesting. Here's his prayer, his second prayer request. He says, uh, "Which I'm ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." He needs boldness. The same word you can turn with me to chapter three, uh, verse twelve. Look at. Can start in verse 11. He says, This was according to the eternal, chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purposes that he was realizing Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So he's talking about boldness here as this freedom to speak openly, freely, candidly before God. We can come before God. Carries the idea of having confidence to speak even in an intimidating situation. That's what Paul is asking for. The great apostle Paul, that we think that he was never afraid, never fearful. What is he doing? Pray for me. I know my weakness. I know. I know my temptations. And it's very easy for me to be fearful. Of proclaiming the gospel. And he might say, bah, that's a joke, Paul. Just read the book of Acts. Paul, you're never afraid. And say, no, I'm often fearful. Thanks be to you, Christians who have always been praying for me. And God, in his mercy and kindness, keeps sustaining me to be faithful and speak boldly. So, for example, in Acts chapter 28, we read that Paul lived in Rome. Two whole years at his own expense. Don't you wish the, the prison system was like that? You're arrested. You got to pay for your own food, buddy. You're not going to use other people's money to pay for your food and cable. And He was arrested and he had to pay for his own expenses. And welcome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. How? With all boldness and without hindrance. Why? Because the church was praying for him. He was asking the church to pray for him. Or 
In Second Timothy, we read, and here's probably an answer to this prayer in Ephesians. In Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and what? Strengthened me. Gave him boldness. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So we see God's faithfulness as the churches corporately are praying for Paul. As he's asking for boldness. And the Lord in his grace is answering and empowering Paul to speak boldly. So Paul asks for prayer, for boldness, because he knows that he needs that. Satan is furious. He's attacking Paul in the same way that he attacks every faithful preacher, Christian, who is proclaiming the gospel and tries to intimidate us, create fear on us. And that's why we need to be praying for each other. We need to pray for boldness to preach. I desperately need, that's why I'm always asking you to pray for me. And every Christian needs boldness. We all need boldness. This freedom to proclaim without fear of consequences. Boldness is not being rude. Sometimes people are rude and they say, I'm bold. No, no, you're being rude. Boldness implies that, that, you know, that you're proclaiming the gospel without fear of men, of consequences. I desperately need your prayers. That's why I'm always asking you to pray for me. And please keep praying for me. Because the temptation is big. You don't want to offend people. You have visitors coming. And you don't want to... You want them to keep coming. And sometimes you have people in our church that... Oh, they might not like to hear that. So you have that temptation. Satanic temptation of fear of men. And we need to fear God and God alone. And we all, especially in the situation we live today, everything we say that's rooted in the Bible is going to be offensive. And it's so easy for us to fear men. To fear men. And we need to be praying for each other for boldness to speak the gospel, no matter what. So, in Acts chapter 4, we read, we saw the Luke showing the, the power house of the church, and it says in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. The Spirit of God empowering God's people to yield the sword of the Spirit. That's what we need. Amen? And honestly, a preacher can know Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, Whatever language they can. You can have the greatest library with all, with all the commentaries. But if you don't have the Spirit of God working in you and God's people praying for you, that preaching might be cool, that preaching might be interesting, but will not be powerful. And that's worthless. So the congregation has a responsibility to be involved in the warfare, as we see here in Ephesians, with prayers for the preaching. And Satan is... Remember that parable that Jesus talks about the seed being thrown, and then the birds coming and snatching and eating the seed? And whoever stands here can clearly see when people are being completely distracted, and you can see the birds coming and snatching. 
So we must all be together praying because that's what Satan loves to do, attack. Attack the word of God, the preaching of God's word. We must all be praying for each other. Amen? So, as we proclaim this, the mystery of the gospel with boldness, that's God's weapon for us to conquer. Jesus came and he bound a strong man. And now we go with the preaching, with the proclamation, surrounded by prayer. We go and take that plunder out, out of the strong man's hand. That's what we see and that's what Paul is doing here. Telling us. As we keep praying for each other. Praying for the preaching. The preaching goes forth and it starts taking people out of the kingdom of darkness. So. My prayer is that we will be or continue being a church growing more and more. That we pray for each other. Pray for the preaching. We all need that. Uh, Parecia, that boldness. Amen? We all here need that boldness to proclaim the gospel. And all these things can only be accomplished, brothers and sisters, is when we pray together. As a church is praying together. We have prayer meeting at 9.30 here. Every Sunday we are together praying. Every Wednesday we pray together. And we can pray more. Set up more days. Get more people together to pray. We need that. Amen? Corporate prayer is the only way for us to be faithful to what the Lord requires from us in this struggle against the kingdom of darkness. So for me, it's fascinating as you come to this portion of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. That's the most precise portion in the Bible about spiritual warfare. And Paul comes towards that conclusion and he tells the whole Christian community that if the church is not praying together, you will not be able to put the armor of God, that's Christ Jesus, and you will not be able to stand in the evil day. So we must be praying together. Amen? Amen. And the beauty is, you think about prayer, is God empowering us, being gracious to us, humbling us so we can just fall on our knees and call on the name of the Lord. And He loves to hear our prayers. He loves when a church is all together, praying together, calling on the name of the Lord. And He comes with His mighty arms to surround that church and strengthen that church. So, I praise the Lord for the faithfulness of this church as it comes to prayer. I talk to other pastors about our times of prayer, and I'll be honest, People get amazed by the amount of people who show up on Wednesday or Sunday mornings to pray. And we see God's reward. He's such a beautiful, gracious God. He rewards us. And He surrounds us as we humble ourselves before Him. Amen? He's always with His arms wide open. Just waiting for us as a church to come underneath Him and lift Him up in prayers. Father, we, we thank you for your word that's true and sustains us, changes us, transforms us. Help us. We cry out. We call upon the name of the Lord. And you hear us from your holy temple. You hear us because we are praying through Jesus, the perfect mediator, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, O triune God, for your work of redemption and sanctification in our lives. 
I pray for this church and I pray for other churches, especially here in Salem area, that they would prioritize and help us to prioritize corporate prayer. What a powerful weapon it is. It is indeed the power station, the power plant of the church. And help us to pray biblical, scripture-centered prayers, Lord, that's pleasing to you. So help us. Satan fears and trembles when he sees a church praying because a church that prays is a church that's depending on you. So be gracious to us, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.